Hi there, and welcome to this episode of Take Home Reading, a new audio series from the Wheeler Centre. In each episode, we'll be speaking to an Australian writer about their latest book and hearing a reading from it. This podcast was recorded on the traditional lands of the Kulin Nation. The Wheeler Centre acknowledges their elders, past and present. We pay our respects to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and to the elders of all lands this broadcast reaches. I'm Stella Charles and I work in the programming team at the Wheeler Centre. Usually I host our monthly reading series, The Next Big Thing, but since we haven't been able to gather together for a few months now, we thought we'd bring these readings to you instead. Today I'm talking to Victoria Hannan. Victoria is a writer, photographer and creative director living in Melbourne. Her writing has appeared on McSweeney's Internet Tendency, 3AM magazine and in her monthly tiny letter about swimming pools. Kokomo, her first novel, was written at artist-in-residence programs in Brazil, Tasmania and Iceland. Kokomo was the 2019 winner of the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript and released in August with Hachette Australia. Hi, Victoria. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, Stella. It's lovely to hear your voice and see your face. Likewise. Will you tell us a little bit about your book, Kokomo? I would love to. So Kokomo begins in London with Mina. She's in her early 30s and she's living, well, she's working in advertising and just falling in love with a fairly terrible man. Um, And then one day she gets a phone call from her best friend back in Melbourne who tells her that her mum has just left the house for the first time in about 12 years. So Mina has to jump on a plane and come home and find out why. Um, When she gets here, she just realises that nothing is as she thought it was and all of her kind of relationships and friendships have changed. So she has to kind of reacquaint herself with her mother and the person that she thought she was. and then hilarity ensues. <laughs> I've heard you say before that um, you were working on an elevator pitch. I think you've nailed it. That was a great one. Thank you. <laughs> I feel like I've said it so many times now that I start to say it without even thinking about the words that are coming out. And I was like, that's bad because then I'll just say things that aren't true. Like hilarity doesn't always ensue <laughs> in this book. Not always, but sometimes. <laughs> It's your debut novel and it was published after winning the Victorian Premier's Literary Award for an unpublished manuscript, which is a pretty huge deal. Congratulations. Thank you. What was was that experience like for you? Did you have any expectations going in? I just, I used the, the entry date as kind of a deadline for myself. There were so many points kind of, I guess, in the year leading up to that where sort of felt like this book was never actually going to be finished. I think I, between the second and third draft, I was booked in to go to this residency in Iceland where I was planning to kind of finish it. And in that time, um, my mum was diagnosed with cancer and she is my dad's primary carer because he has Parkinson's. And I just had this moment where I was like, I can't go to a residency and like put this manuscript which I don't even know if didn't at that point obviously know that it was ever going to be a real thing it's like I can't put that before my family they need me and I told mom like I'm not going to go I'm going to stay here and look after you and she was like don't be stupid get on that plane and finish that stupid book um (laughs) and so I did and it really did feel like that time in Iceland it was like if I don't finish this now it's never gonna happen 
And so I put quite a lot of pressure on myself to get that done, knowing that the deadline for the VPLAs was coming up. Um, and I also knew that when I got back to Melbourne, I was going to be going back to Adelaide every weekend or every second weekend to help look after my family. And I had a full-time job lined up. And so it really felt like I was going to finish the book in Iceland and then enter it in the VPLAs and then just like get on with my life and never think about it again, just be a serious person for a change. But obviously I got on the short list. Um, and I remember I was actually in California for a wedding and I was standing on the street in LA when I got the email from the Wheeler Center telling me that I was on the short list. And it has just been such a stressful year that I just wept on the street. Um, and from then things just got like quite crazy. There was just like I signed with my dream agent um, and I had publishers sending me emails asking to read the manuscript and then think by kind of mid-January I'd got the phone call from the Wheeler Centre telling me that I had won and then I cried some more um, and then from there you know I signed a two-book deal with Hachette and uh, it was actually like pretty life-changing just in terms of like needing something nice to come along and happen mm -hmm. in my life and it was really the best thing that I could have ever hoped for. So yeah, considering I was using it as a deadline, it really did come along and surprise me and change everything. I'm so pleased for you and so pleased for us as readers that um, your mum gave you that encouragement that you needed and that we're able to, yeah, to read your book now and anticipate another book. That's very exciting. Um, I think the book is going to provoke all the obvious Sally Rooney comparisons, I'm sure, because it what you do is so skillfully capture the nuances of relationships, of friendships between women and um, between mothers and daughters and between men and women as well. Um, but I'd love to know what you were reading while writing Kokomo. Are there any specific writers that you found yourself returning to? I read was just trying to read everything. Um, I think in the year that I first started writing this, I read 100 books and I think that actually just helped shape this so much because I was trying to absorb so much and understand structure. And I think um, when I was reading, when I was writing this, I was reading a lot of Deborah Levy. So I love the cost of living so much. I think that book is just superb. Um, I read some uh, Elizabeth Strout, who I also love, and I just love the way that she can so deftly just like weave in humour um, in amongst things that are quite tragic and sad. Um, I also really loved The Animators by um, Kyla Ray Whitaker. I think that book is sadly underread and the energy of it is incredible. Mm. Um, and I also remember finishing my third draft and then reading um, My Year of Rest and Relaxation by Tessa Moshfeg and just being like, oh, God, I have to start again. Like I have to make my book be as weird and funny and dark and good as that obviously I didn't start again but I definitely feel like I felt the influence of of her I think what Kokomo does that um my year of rest and relaxation also does is kind of like you have this character with agoraphobia um or um I'm not sure if it's ever diagnosed but who you know doesn't leave her house and um that sense of claustrophobia as a reader reading that experience, um, which I think Atessa Moshvet captures as well. Um, yeah, it was so striking to me. And I read it even before 
you know, being in isolation <laughs> due to COVID. Like I, there is a kind of cruel twist now, yeah. I guess, having a book out in the world. Yeah, it was quite um, funny when I, I was. What that might be like. Yeah. When I was writing it, I had this thought of like, is anyone going to like be able to empathise with what it's like to be stuck in your house for a long time? Mm. And now we all know what that feels like. So I feel like <laughs> Elaine is sort of relatable in some ways because she's inside that's the mother character Elaine but also um in other ways she wants to stay inside whereas we're all just like oh my god I need to get out of mm-hmm. this house so yeah I think we people will empathize with her at all but also find her a bit um infuriating maybe I I think um when you mentioned that you love in Elizabeth Strout's writing that she can weave humour through kind of the um, the tragedy of like everyday life, I I think that while your novel packs an emotional punch, and there are so many moments of heartache and longing that have definitely stayed with me months after reading it. You've also woven your really witty sense of humour throughout it how important was that balance to you and and how did that influence some of the kind of more surprising decisions I think you make with your writing? Um, The introduction, like the first few pages spring to mind as an obvious example. I think a few years ago I tried, well, I've tried to write novels for quite a long time and for a little while I was writing these like quite serious sort of literary things and it just didn't feel natural to my voice. I'm not a very serious but I like I take my writing very seriously but I'm generally not a very serious person um and actually the way that I deal with some of the heavier and darker things in my life is through humor and so when I sat down to write Kokomo that was so important that there was some kind of lightness to the darkness in there because otherwise I think it would be kind of a bit too heavy and sad but you know, life isn't like, you know, life is not all darkness. There is some light there too. And so I think that was important for the balance. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's a very Melbourne novel. A lot of um, the action takes place in Melbourne suburbs in a way that feels very recognisable to read as someone living in Melbourne. Um, did you kind of, was that setting there right from the word go for you or how so, how did you... The first, the first draft that I wrote of Kokomo was actually set in Kokomo, Indiana, um, <laughs> and I'd never been there, so I spent a lot of time on Google Street View and, like, reading about the town and trying to understand it. And it, I remember finishing the first draft and having a conversation with a friend and I was like, it's got, it's, that's got to change. Like, that doesn't feel right at all. And it was kind of a choice between either Adelaide or Melbourne because Adelaide is where I'm from originally. And so going home there for me often feels like a bit of a struggle um, just because I, you know, I lived I lived in the UK for a long time as well. And so, you know, you live this completely separate other life overseas and then you come home and everything's sort of the same, but it's also quite different. Um so, yeah, I, I think because I was living in Melbourne when I was kind of coming up with the idea and in, in the in-between times when I wasn't on residencies overseas and interstate, um, Melbourne just felt like the most natural place to set it. Have you been able to read over the last few months in isolation? This is a very selfish question. I'm just 
enjoying hearing people's responses because probably because I feel like I haven't been able to read very well, um, but I'm learning a lot from what other people have found comforting or distracting over the last couple of months. I'm going through phases where I can, I'll sit down and read a book in a day and then I won't be able to read for two weeks after that. And I find Mm -hmm. that I will sit down to start to read and then I will all of a sudden just be like 10 minutes deep into Instagram scrolling without even realizing. But I have found there are a couple of books that I've powered through. So I've read um, Ronnie Scott's The Adversary in a day, which I think is one of my favorite books that I've read this year. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also, what else I read the safe place by Anna Downs, which is, I don't read many thrillers, but that was just an absolute page turner. And I just tore through it in a couple of hours. Um, and also the mother fault by Kate Mildenhall, which is coming out in September. And that was another one that I just kind of ripped through it. It was just a good page turner. So maybe that's the secret, mm-hmm. um, is to just find things that, you actually can't put, you don't want to put them down to look at your phone. Yeah, I think so. I'd love for you to read an extract from Kokomo for us. Is there anything you'd like to say to set up before you read? Um, I'm going to read from the very start of the book. So not really a setup except maybe just a bit of a content warning because there's quite a few penises coming up. (laughs) Take it away. Mina knew in that moment what love is. She saw it in vivid colour, saw that love is being inside each other. Love is being turned inside out together, all that pink splayed and splayed, everything on show for one another. She knew that showing love is letting someone inside you or being let inside someone, inside and outside, in love and out of love. She looked at Jack, at his penis, so tall and pink, a soldier standing to attention, a ballerina in first position. It was tipping its hat to her, inviting her to dance. Mina saw herself as a sailor lost at sea and Jack's penis a lighthouse alerting her to the presence of land, to the presence of safety. I am a hiker who has lost her way, Mina thought, and this penis is a cooey heard deep in the bush. Mina felt ready to call back, to respond to love. The second thing Mina knew that she was sure of was that this was the nicest penis she had ever seen, both on the internet and in person. She watched Jack as he began to touch it his fingers wrapped around the base of it, how you might hold a rolling pin, a truncheon if you're about to brandish it as a weapon and thwack it down hard on a skull. He moved his hand up and down, that calf leather softness pulled taut over all the veins and spongy flesh, all the spouts and tubes. Soon all of it would be inside her, then outside, then inside again, making its way through the entrances and exits of her body one by one, then back again. This was love, she thought, and her heart felt stretched wide open and ready to receive it. Jack looked at her while he touched it. There was a darkness in his eyes she'd never seen before, that she knew now in this moment, knew for sure, to be a love so deep it lived in the places the sun couldn't reach, down there where the fish have evolved to be too ugly for the light. Love wiped clean, a blank slate, love as darkness, she understood this now. Love as shadow, love as shade. Come here, he said, and she shuffled up the grey cushions of the sofa almost on all fours, a kitten padding towards milk. She smiled, wet lips, no teeth. Come here, he grabbed her arm just below the elbow and guided her hand towards him. She could hear her heart beat, a hollow gadunk-gadunk inside her chest like a drum. She was aware of her body. It felt suddenly that her skin was covered in feathers being ruffled by the wind, that she had the back-combed fur of a dog. The sound, the beating, the thud, the thud, it was below her, outside of her. 
It was not her heart, she realised, but her phone vibrating against an empty forever yellow Tupperware container in her bag. Leave it, Jack said, trying to pull her closer. But her hand reached down, fingers touching the corner of the cool plastic box, feeling the urgent vibrations of it. Leave it, he said again, the darkness of love in his voice too. She found it, she pulled it out, she looked at the screen, she answered it. Mina, it's your mum, Kira said. She left the house. Then Kira said it again as if she didn't believe it either. She left the house. Chapter 2 Mina waved at the blood-red hatchback as it crept along the passenger pickup lane. Kira grinned at her from the driver's seat, waved back. Without indicating, she pulled into the curb, almost at a right angle, blocking in a family in an SUV the size of a tank. You're here, Kira yelled, waving with cartoon-like excitement as she climbed out of the car. I'm here, Mina said, and Kira wrapped her long arms tightly around her, locking Mina's in place by her side. Kira released her, pulled her in again. Mina relaxed into it this time, let herself be held up, held tight, close. She stretched her arms around Kira's back, felt Kira's sharp shoulder blades, her ribs through her jumper, her black bob smelt like apples. It started to spit with rain. You smell terrible, Kira said as she broke from the hug. Mina laughed. It's good to see you too. She let Kira wheel her suitcase out onto the road, then lift it with ease onto the back seat of the car. Kira smiled at the family in the SUV and the driver smiled back. Mina watched him watch Kira as she jogged around the Sorry, jogged around the car and slid into the driver's seat. Mina could tell he was looking at the way her legs moved inside her jeans, that he was thinking about his dry, rough skin touching her perfect soft skin. Mina sat in the front passenger seat, squeezing her backpack in by her feet. The floor was carpeted with parking fines, dog-eared audition sides, cheeseburger wrappers. Sorry, Kira said as if she was seeing the mess for the first time. Just put your feet on it. It's all old. She put the car into reverse, then drive, then reverse, then drive, inching backwards and forwards until they were driving out past the airport hotel, past the long-term car parks and into the damp grey Melbourne morning. Did you sleep on the plane? Kira asked. Not really, but I'm not a good sleeper these days. Mina watched the tall white trunks of gum trees whiz by through the beaded beaded curtain of rain on the window. It's good you came, Kira said. Her eyes flicked from the road to Mina and back. I don't know that I had much of a choice. Mina felt the heaviness in her chest, her stomach like she was submerged in something thicker than water. She reached forward and turned on the radio. The saxophone bit of careless whisper oozed out of the car's crackling speakers. They look good, by the way, Mina said, glancing at Kira in profile. The full lips and high cheekbones, the skin that was exactly the same colour on every part of her, save for a light dusting of freckles across her nose. Now the perfect Z-cups, pointing upwards, everything impossibly in proportion. What, these old things? Kira moved her hand around her breasts like a model on the prices right, showing off a right-on lawnmower. Do they still hurt? Mina asked. A bit when I run, but otherwise all good. Kira cupped one of them instinctively. Did they feel fake when we hugged? They felt firm, Mina said, but I've never touched fake ones before. Give them a go, Kira said, and pushed her chest out. Mina poked one, then cupped it, bounced it once, twice. They're great, Mina confirmed, but they were great tips, but tits before, just for the record. Thank you so much, Victoria. That Thank was great. You. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Take Home Reading, a Wheeler Centre audio series. That was Victoria Hannon reading from her debut novel, Kokomo. It's published by Hachette Australia and available now. Please shop local and support new Australian work. We'll be back soon with another episode of Take Home Reading. Until then, visit wheelercentre.com for the best in books, writing and ideas from Melbourne, Australia and the world.